Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning. Genesis, we're going to go to chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. At Sunday school, they were teaching how God created everything, including human beings. Little Johnny, a child in kindergarten class, was especially intent when the teacher told him that Eve, Adam's wife, was created out of one of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying as though he were ill. She said, Johnny, what's the matter? Oh, little Johnny responded, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife. (laughs) Of all the animals, what animal could Noah not trust? What do you think? Of all the animals, what animal could Noah not trust? The cheetah. Okay, sorry. Heavenly humor. Genesis chapter 4. I hope you have it. Start with me. We're going to read verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve. We could stop there. We could have a good discussion, right? No, let's keep going. This is G-rated. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field... Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The title of what I'm sharing this morning is from the account of Genesis. is the sixth part of our series entitled, I've just entitled, The Next Generation. Father, we just open our hearts and minds to your word to understand you so that we can begin to understand us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you for joining with us as we go through Genesis, series titled Genesis. It's, uh, I finally figured out how long it's going to be. I am just finished up session eight in my prep, and I know I can do it in two more sessions. Uh, I need to do that. I want to get it done before Easter, and so uh, bringing this down to 10 sessions. We are in session six. I invite you to join on Wednesday nights, Wednesday nights starting this Wednesday at, uh, even if you come at seven o'clock, we won't get started until seven, but at 6.30 it's our children's program, it's our family ministry here at the church. And we're going to step out, I decide I'm going to step off, I've been on the study since September in the book of Romans, But we're going to step off the book of Romans because uh, I want to go through a 12-part series. It's a video-driven series uh, called The Genesis Account. And as we go through that series, 12-part series, we we need to start this week in order to be done uh, by uh, Victoria Weekend. So uh, join us for that. That's going to take place in the fireside room downstairs. Basically go downstairs at the end of the hall. You'll come straight into us. And we'll be starting that this Wednesday, uh, 6.30, if you're there at 6.30, 
Uh, we'll be gathering 7 o'clock. We'll get right into the series by that time. And that's going to run a number of weeks. You can come any time during that, but invite you to come. We're going to be talking about what we are doing here, going a bit more in depth in that uh, hour to hour and a half that we'll have together. I'm going to put up the resources. The resources are there, if you can put that up and uh, invite you to the resources. In our last five sessions, uh, those listening by website or podcast, invite you to go back and take time to go through them because we have gone from Genesis 1-1 very systematically to where we are today. I need to say this in order to take us to chapter 4. We're going to cover two chapters today. I need to say this. In the first two chapters of Genesis that we see Genesis was written for us both theologically and historically. It is important, and this is very important, you may, you may have taken this for granted, but don't, because when you start to talk to others about Genesis, many will try to approach Genesis as an allegory. We're talking within the church, as an allegory. Don't take it seriously. But the rest of scriptures took generous Genesis literally. They took it as it was. As a matter of fact, over and over in the New Testament, they referred back to Genesis as a literal account. They referred to Genesis as a historical account. They referred to Genesis as a chronology of the origin of life. So Genesis is not just allegories. It's not just interesting literature. Genesis is meant for us to be able to put timetables to and to be able to put the essence of human living and where sin interjects our lives and how it continues to affect us. And so we are treating Genesis as Genesis was meant to be treated. That's why we've taken the time because Genesis has been something that has uh, been uh, horrifically diluted over the last number of decades, uh, particularly in an age now that now propagates evolution as fact. It is not cannot prove it scientifically. You can't prove Genesis scientifically either, for that matter, because you have to do it by experiment, by experiment. But there is good evidence, and the more we study and the more we look into it, we see valuable evidence of the things that Genesis has spoken of. And I've been trying to touch on a number of those points. We see in the first two chapters of Genesis, God said, all of this was good, it was without sin, it was all in purity. We come to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and God closes this chapter with the family. One man, one woman for life and reproduce. The end of chapter 2, we enter into chapter 3 last week where we talked in our fifth session where it was, we call it the um, uh, original sin, the fallen natures. It's referred to in theological circles as original sin. And in original sin, we see where Adam and Eve, Eve was deceived, Adam chose to rebel against God. We talked last week of the definition of evil. Evil is not a thing. Evil is not a thing. Evil is a privation of a thing. Deprived. Evil deprives something that is good. It's now evil. We also talked last week of the power of contrary choice. You cannot have love unless you have a choice not to love. Otherwise, you're programmed or you're robotic. You must have an option not to love. God gave an option not to love. It's called the power of contrary choice. We see this really lived out as we go into the book of Romans. And Romans talks about the battle of original sin. The battle of the fallen nature. Because from the point where Adam and Eve fell, not only was there a curse upon mankind, there was a curse upon animals, and there was a curse upon creation. The world groans under the curse. And we see all the things from the curse as a result of the curse. Spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. When it comes to man and the curse of sin in us, that battle that takes place, and we referred to Romans chapter 6 last week, where Paul says, and you do the things you don't want to do, and the things you don't want to do, you do, and the things you do, you don't, and he's that conflict of the battle within us. 
Ravi Zacharias, he's an apologist, tells a story. I was listening to this just yesterday on podcasts as I was traveling. He was talking when his daughter was young. He was talking to his daughter. And his daughter, seven years of age, was contemplating the evil nature in her. She didn't like doing bad things. And at the same time, she loved doing bad things. And she asked, Dad, Dad, how come? It'd be one thing if I didn't like the bad, but I, I like doing bad. I enjoy doing bad. It's pleasurable. And Zavi responded with, uh, Ravi responded with this. He says, you love the part of you, because she's a child of God. She had committed her life to Jesus. He says this, you love the part of you that loves to do good. But you, being a child of God, but you hate the part of you that loves to do evil. I'm going to say that again. You love the part of you that loves to do good, but you hate the part of you that loves to do evil. See, that's the difference. As a child of God, there grows the ability and hatred of what you love to do evil. You will always desire to do evil as long as you are in this body. The fallen nature. You will desire. We made a, con a, a statement last week. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because, finish it. You're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You're, you, you, you sin because you're a sinner. And you take pleasure in evil. Evil, deprivation of good. You take pleasure in it. And so back to that statement. Again, it's fairly profound. Where he said to his little daughter, and she, and, she, and she says, I get it, Dad. I get it. You love the part of you that loves good. We do. We just wish that we could stay there. But as a child of God, may this grow. But you hate the part of you that loves to do evil. So that in Christ, he cleanses us to do good. Well, the story we pick up of Adam and Eve as... Chapter 2 finishes with the family. It was all good. Chapter 3, the fall. Chapter 4 is the next generation. And it only gets worse. Chapter 4, verse 1, is where Eve bears their first child. Sin has happened just prior to the birth of Cain. The fall of mankind has happened just prior to verse 1, chapter 4. How do we know? Because in the way she spoke in verse 1, Adam made love to his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the phrase, the seed Messiah. That's the phrase, man. The seed Messiah. I have brought forth the seed that will redeem us back. Eve truly thought that because of the weight of sin, that God's promise that He would bring redemption, that through her seed, redemption would come, and it would. But she honestly thought this was it. This birthing. Thank you, God, with His help. Now we can get back to what is all good. What she did not know is it would be 4,000 more years. She thought it would be in the birthing of Cain. But it would be years later in the coming of Christ. We put the picture up if you would. In all this, our narrative turns to sacrifices. There was by now a fixed time in which offerings were being offered. If you remember in the last part of chapter 3, that instead of being the covering as they noticed their nakedness, their ashamedness, their guiltiness, they grabbed leaves God took the life of the first animal to die. Not only did the animal die, the animal did not die of natural death. The animal died at the hands of the Creator. And in all likelihood, God, in front of Adam and Eve, took the, death, took the life of that animal, gutted the animal, and covered Adam and Eve with the skins of the animal. So now you will be covered. Here's the principle. Innocence will now pay the price of your guilt. The animal did not sin. But innocence will pay the price to cover your guilt. Now we come into the ongoing covering of our guilt. The ongoing covering required sacrifice and it required blood. 
And it required the sacrifice of innocent for the guilty. In a few moments, we're going to be gathering around the Lord's table. This is what it's about. The innocent for the guilty. The innocent for the guilty. So the sacrifices were at a regular time. Animals would be killed. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. So in order for Cain to sacrifice, blood sacrifice, he would take from the produce of his land and he would exchange it. He would market it for an animal. It would be an exchange. He would pay the price for an animal. You see this again in New Testament in the outer courts of the temple, that if you didn't have your own animal, if you traveled miles, you would come and you would pay for an animal that would be slain on your behalf of its innocence for your guilt. So this was what Cain would be doing as a person of the land. He would pay, and they did this. We have every reason to believe this was a part of the ongoing. It was a part of a fixed time where they had their offerings. They had both been bringing guilt offerings, offerings of blood. Blood sacrifice represented the cost of sin. Innocent would pay for the guilty. And of course, the picture is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, innocent dying for the guilty to live. This particular day, though, first part of chapter 4, Cain chose, remember the power of contrary choice, Cain chose not to buy an animal for blood sacrifice. Instead, he chose to sacrifice his way. He chose to sacrifice without death. He chose to sacrifice from the fruit of the ground. No wonder in Jude, in the New Testament, Jude chapter 11, denounces practitioners of false religion as having, quote, walked in the way of Cain. Now we understand this better. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain means I will sacrifice my way, not God's way. I will sacrifice according to my plans and not by the blood. That is the ultimate of religion. It's the ultimate of self-reliance. I'm going to do it my way. God has asked his way. I will do it my way. And so Cain stepped into it. I will do it my way, not God's way. And Jude denounces that. People in false religion, those just doing their own, anything outside of faith in Jesus Christ, anything outside of that is Walking in the way of Cain. Way of Cain, doing it your own way. I'm going to serve God my way. We see it all around, don't we? Maybe you've come out of that. Saying Cain did this against God and sin. Now, one sin leads to another. Cain's sin in this, this is an unacceptable offering. Now, begin to watch. Here's the depravity of sin. Watch this. Then the Bible says... He became exceedingly angry. Everybody say exceedingly angry. It literally means seethed in anger. Cain has sinned against God. God says that is an unacceptable off- offering. It's no blood. And now he, Cain is angry. Cain is angry. Seethed in anger. And as a result, God counsels Cain. That you have no cause to be angry with your brother. You have no cause to be angry with me, Cain. And in the midst of this, God moves quickly into the situation. Watch this. God moves quickly into the situation, showing mercy to Cain. God is not absent. He is not out there hiding somewhere. Immediately at the point of saying Cain's sin, God is present. Listen, church. When you feel God is not there, He is. It's not God that's hiding. It's not God that's ever hiding. God immediately moves in the situation of Cain's sin and demonstrates mercy. And God is basically saying, Cain, something good can still come of this. But God gives a stern warning that to not repent and fall on his mercy would result in great sin. Cain, something can still happen. Cain, ask for forgiveness. Cain, fall on my mercy. And this can turn into a good moment. That's what God did. 
This is still what God does. The most powerful thing is to ask God forgiveness. The most powerful thing you will ever do is ask God for forgiveness and to repent. The most powerful thing you can ever do. And God said, Cain, now's the moment. This can turn into good. And you see the narrative move in mercy. God says, beware of sin. As a matter of fact, God describes sin here as sin is crouching at your door. The word crouching was used, that very word is used in chapter 49, verse 9. And it actually described a crouching lion. Picture this. God says, Cain, beware. Now's the time to fall on my mercy. Because sin is crouching at your door. Do you see it? Sin is crouching at your door. This is the first mention of the word sin anywhere in the Bible. The basic meaning. Missing the mark. I want to show this next picture of the death. Cain evidently didn't listen. Remember the first thing? He seethed in anger. Number two, revenge. You see... Sin that continues to take you down and down and down. Revenge, which would lead to him murdering his brother Abel. And at this, Cain becomes, from verse 9 to 12, a fugitive, leading to the banishment of Cain from the field in which he worked. And Cain became a wanderer. From there on, any wanderers. We can say so many parallels, I'm not going to take the time. Cain protests against the punishment, verses 13 and 14, wherein Cain acknowledges the severity of what just happened. Hear the words, the cry from this wanderer as he allowed sin to escalate. Hear the words of the wanderer. Cain says this, you have driven me today from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive. Whoever finds me will kill me. I want to roll this back now. Listen to the words. These are our words. You have driven me today away from the ground. In other words, I've lost my purpose. Sin. From your face I shall be hidden. I've lost fellowship with God. Number three. I shall be a fugitive. I have no permanent abode. And lastly, whoever finds me will kill me. And this shows... Evidence that there was already a significant population in the world at that time. The other sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and their descendants and their descendants. Someone, someone is going to avenge the death of Abel. Someone is going to avenge it and Cain is well aware of it. But in the middle of this I come back to God's mercy. Chapter 4 verse 15. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Peter would ask, how many times do I forgive? Jesus said, seven times seventy. We'll avenge him seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. God here promises that if anyone dared kill Cain, they would receive punishment seven times as heavy. Seven times. Seven is the number of completion. Therefore, Cain, you are, from God's mercy, you are, in spite of what you've done, you are completely protected. Furthermore, the mark placed on Cain actually is translated a mark for Cain, meaning God's reassurance that Cain was marked to live, and everybody knows it. Cain, you're marked to live, and everybody, when they look at you, they can't touch you. You're marked to live. God's mercy. Well, right at the top, it says Cain, uh, well, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, let's read it. Genesis 4, 17. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. He named it after his son, Enoch. Cain made love to his wife. Okay, we, here's one of the big questions people have contesting the creation story. Who is Mrs. Cain? Since Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, Genesis 5 verse 4, who is Mrs. Cain? He had to have married his sister, his niece, his grandniece. He married family member. Who's 
his sister because of, or who did he marry? Because if he married his sister, then God endorses incestuous relationships. Okay, you've heard of it. Who did he marry? And the answer is, yes, he married either his sister, his niece, or his grandniece. He married one of them. And everybody, you have permission right here to say, yuck. Go ahead. Yuck. Yuck. Before you start throwing quotations of incestuous sins at me, I want to state two things that are very important here. We need to get this because this is used against the Genesis account. One is called the moral obligation. The second is called biological problem. Okay, let's look at these. The moral obligation, biological. Let's look at the moral obligation. Now let's understand. The law is yet to be given and will not happen for 2,500 more years. At the point this happened, the law does not, is not given until the time of Moses. And Moses is not for 2,500 more years in the future. The law has not yet to be given. Now, before you can quickly excuse it by saying that, I need to explain the moral obligation. Here's the moral obligation. Although the law, although there was no law given, there was a moral law in place. And this can be deduced from Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Let me read it. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. I'm going to back that up. Going, huh? The Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They haven't got the law, but they do the things required by the law. They, the things required, are a law of themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Now, church, listen. Although this is talking about the Gentiles, a literal group, people group in Romans, you can relate it to anyone who had yet to receive the law, including the day of Cain and Abel. They had yet to receive the law, just as the Romans had not received the law in chapter 2 in Romans. That's why, as an example, when Cain murdered his brother, although the law of thou shalt not murder didn't come into place until 2,500 years later, when Cain, married, Cain murdered his brother, he was actually breaking a law of God. It was wrong. Why? Moral obligation. They knew that in their heart, conscience, and thoughts. Another illustration, though, we know that God also spoke about marriage relationships. We know that God spoke in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that one man, one woman for life. That's God's design. Therefore, fornication, adultery, same-sex marriages were forbidden. However, intermarriage was not forbidden until 2,500 years later. So you see, fornication, adultery, same-sex, but intermarriage is not specified to 2,500 years later. It's first pronounced, if you look it up, Leviticus 18.11. It's the first time it's mentioned. And it says in verse 11, Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. There is no basis for insisting that Cain would have sinned by marrying his sister. To the contrary, even 2,000 years after this event, there were still brother-sister marriages taking place, including Abraham, Genesis 13, Abraham and his half-sister Sarah. And God clearly blessed that marriage. So, did God change his mind? 2,500 years, God changes his mind. Ah, but God can't change his mind. Did God change his mind? These are the arguments. Well, this brings us to the moral obligation. Secondly, the biological issue. The biological issue. It is not true that marrying a relative inevitably causes deformities. That's why you don't, they, they have laws about not marrying your sister and stuff, because it causes deformities. But it is not true that marrying a relative inevitably causes deformities because, I'm going to start right here, we all have married a relative. Pause to get that one. We are all children of Adam and Eve. 
So it's like it's a distant relative. But if you are not married to a relative, they're an alien. <laughs> True? Check me if I'm wrong. We all marry relatives. We all come from original parents. Okay. Here's the issue. Deformity has to do with close relatives. Close relatives presents the problem because of the defects in our DNA coding due to genes that repeat. The issue is the DNA genes that repeat that bring deformity. It's called mutations. It brings an hereditary disease and we have illustrations today like cystic fibrosis and hemophilia those are illustrations and there are others that are part they call them mutations this is where genetic mistakes keep getting copied in close relatives let me illustrate this with a computer on your computer if you make a copy of an error your computer comes up with horrible errors and you keep copying Randomly from that error, you will keep producing errors off the original. It's the same principle. In close relationship, the defects keep defecting. They're too close because there's not a balance yet in the DNA of, of the original. Remember, God pronounced original creation as very good. So up and even at the point of Adam and Eve, very good. Made them very good. It was only after the fall, chapter 3, genetic coding mistakes began to happen. And it would take many generations to accumulate where the risks now come into place. Cain and his sister could marry without biological problems because mutations had not set in. And you can, you can experiment with those. Those are things that can be experimented with. So the question is, is does, does God change his mind? Then 2,500 years later, still, we're back to that question. Well, circumstances changed 2,500 years later. I want to give another illustration to illustrate this. It's like a farmer who has their sheep. And the farmer is looking after the sheep. And the sheep are grazing in a meadow. And as far as the eye can see, for miles and miles, the meadow is flat. There's no danger. Does the farmer need to put fences around the sheep? However, as the sheep move to new grazing areas, the sheep come up against a ravine, come up against a cliff. Now the farmer must put a fence along the cliff. Prior was not necessary. But now the danger is imminent. Did the farmer change his mind? Yes. Based on what? On the circumstances. Follow? In the same way, having permitted intermarriage between close relatives in order to commence humanity from one man and one woman, a point was reached where God clearly chose to institute a new law which, like in the case of the sheep, was for their protection. In particular, when you move into 2,500 years later, you see Israel becoming eventually a nation. 3,000 years later, they become a nation. And because they were genetically an isolated population, remember they were a chosen nation. They were now an isolated group of people. And of course, God said, I don't want you marrying outside your tribe. That wasn't an option. They had to marry inside their tribe. A law had to come into place. A law had to come in place that would increase the likelihood of them being normal because the likelihood in that close circulation of people would be to marry brothers and sisters if you didn't. Okay, so let's talk about Seth because Seth, in replacement of Abel, is born. When we read of Seth and where he appears, a replacement for Abel, Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, we're in verse 25, Adam at this point is 130 years old. This allows for three to four generations with numbers increasingly multiplying exponentially each time. Can we talk for a moment here about monogamous versus polygamous marriages? This is another attack against the God of creation. From the time of Adam and Eve onward, God's model for marriage has always been and remains monogamous. One man, one woman for life. That's always God's intent. 
However, polygamous marriages happened, but they were never God's design. They were discouraged, but God would make provisions how to respond to them, and you'll see that consistently. Never God's plan, but they did happen, and God responded to them. Now, if we go back to the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, really it ends off with four key people. I'm going to come back to these people. Jabel, Jubal, Tubal-Cain, and Enoch. I'm going to come back to those four in a moment. I'm going to tuck them away. I'm not ignoring them because they are important. I want to go to chapter 5. It's from Adam now to Noah. And this really begins the line of Seth, another son of Adam and Eve. Many modern Bible readers might skip over chapter 5 of Genesis, and I have many times. Just, it's got a lot of names. However, in most cultures, names are very important. Ancestry is very important. And indeed, the New Testament, Luke chapter 3, cites all these names in order to present the genealogy to Jesus Christ. So these are very important. They have to be important names. This affirms, this is not merely a theological book, Genesis is a historical book because quoted from Luke 3 is Genesis 5. If we can put up on the, on the display here, the next graph, okay. I want you to take a look at that. I don't know how, how clearly you can see them. I think you can see them okay. Uh, let me talk about this for a second. Genesis chapter 5, do you realize Genesis chapter 5 in this one chapter is 1,500 years of lifespan. To give you a picture of what that is, in the entirety from the time of Adam to the time of the end of Malachi chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament, to Luke chapter 2, the birth of Christ, in that span of time, that is 4,000 years. Adam to Jesus is 4,000 years. Chapter 5 alone is 1,500 of those years. Okay? That's 1,500 as you see in front of you. These 1,500 years, the total span of biblical history that takes us to the point of Abraham. There's no room in here for any gaps in the chronological picture of Genesis chapter 5. If you look at this particular span, there's considerable generational overlap. Almost all Adam's descendants in this line could have known him because he died in Lamech's 56th year. Only Noah could never have known him. Noah's son, Shem, could have known Abraham and passed on the records in Genesis 5 to Genesis 6 because he was eye account to all of it. Furthermore, most of Abraham's post-flood ancestors were still alive when he was, so there was ample opportunity for corroboration. Now, I'm just pulling, I'm looking at the map here myself at what you're seeing. Do you notice on that, and I don't know if I did it on yours, I didn't on this one, but I took a line from Lamech, if you see down uh, just about the middle to the left, you see Lamech, and if you follow from Lamech, Lamech is Noah's dad. Lamech knew personally Adam. They were together for a number of years. Noah would not have known Adam personally, but his dad did. First-hand account. If you continue to follow that on down through, you notice that Noah would have known Enos. He would have known him personally, but of course he wouldn't have known Adam. Now continue that to the right of the screen, and you note down to Abraham, just to kind of figure information, Abraham did not know Noah personally, but Abraham knew Noah's son personally. Abraham knew Shem. And Abraham's dad, Terah, knew Noah. So you see how that counts. And you see that span of time. Because we wonder, where all the people come from? That's a lot of time. It's a lot of people. Okay? So, just a, kind of an interesting chart there to put before you to understand a little bit about the picture of how big this is. How did patriots live so long? There's another question. And the quick answer is one word. Genetics. Genetics. 
When it comes to why we live to certain ages and why organisms deteriorate with age at different rates, admittedly, the, the stuff I've been reading, there's a, not a lot of it understood. But there is one main factor in all of this, and it's called mutations. Mutations that accumulate in our cells as they divide and make our bodies less fit. Remember, God created Adam and Eve with no mutations. He created them perfect. They would have lived forever had not the sin taken place. No mutations. Mutations increase over time and generations. Proven fact, scientifically, can be proven. Human bodies at that time had higher genetic limits because mutations had not continued to produce. Such that barring an accident or a disease, living hundreds of years was not a problem. It was the norm. Mutations had not bore its effect. Now, how do we know this? Because we can study this in the reverse. It's studied today in recent years with the opposite problem called HGPS. HGPS means Hutchinson-Guilford Progeria Syndrome. Often referred to in the short form, Progeria is often pronounced Proteria. It affects one in eight million children. Now, Proteria is a Greek word. It's a Greek word meaning old man. Sufferers with Proteria age five to ten times faster than usual. With typical geriatric symptoms of baldness, cataracts, osteoporosis, dying usually by the age of 13 years of age, usually from heart attack or stroke. 13 years of age from heart attack or stroke. Proteria is caused, what happens in those particular individuals, is caused by a mutation changing only one of the 25,000 base pairs in a lamin gene. This single change can cause a tenfold drop in lifespan. We can, we can study it in the reverse of what mutations do. So let me get back to chapter 4 and chapter 5. I need to finish this up. I want to talk about Jabel, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, and Lamech. Chapter 4, verse 17. Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Go down to verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. 22. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. 23. Lema said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Again, I'm going to come back to wives, plural. Not good. Okay. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lema, hear my words. Wives, listen up. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. 24. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. There's some powerful points in this. This is from the line of Cain. Two lines are spreading out here. You have to follow this. There's a line of Cain, there's a line of Seth. Seth is the line of righteousness, the line of Cain is unrighteousness and evil. Two lines begin to populate earth. Now, there's still evil in Seth's line, but Cain with ultimate evil. Some powerful points can be observed from the line of Cain. Verse 16 states, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. He walked away from God, and his sin unrepentant. Watch how it deeply, deeply affects the next generation. I can't pause too much for effect. Sins left unattended. The impact of the next generation. You see it. Fundamentally different family groups arising out of the fall. One from the godly line of Seth. One from the line, ungodly line of Cain. And from Cain's generation, Jabel, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, and Lamech. Jabel, verse 20. He is the father of what is today agriculture. Jubal, verse 21, is the father of today's the arts. Tubal Cain, verse 22, is the father of all industry. 
Do you see it? Go back and read those and mark them in your Bible. I encourage you to do that. You have the fathers of the three main essence of life and working today. And I want to say in the middle of all that, you have becoming self-reliant without God. We can replace work as our God. We can replace father of agriculture, the father of arts, and the father of industry in place of reliance on God. I'm going to talk about that a bit more. And then Lamech. Okay, now we have Lamech, verse 19, who's the granddad of these boys, and he marries two women. This now is the first recorded polygamous in Scripture. And by the way, whenever there's polygamous relationships anywhere in Scripture, they never turn out well. Okay? I'm going to leave it there. Now, remember, this is all from the line of Cain. Lamech, verse 23, testifies to his wives, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. He's boasting. Do you see evil manifesting in arrogance here? Remember, evil is not an entity in and of itself. Evil is a privation of something good. Killing a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. This is nothing more than spiteful revenge. It's nothing more than that. Evil taking place. Now I'm going to step out and move to the line of Seth. The chapter ends with the line of Seth stating, at that time, the end of chapter 4, at that time, what time? Evil. At that evil time, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And I want to cry out, what took so long? Genesis chapter 5 verse 18 continues with the genealogy of righteousness. Now you begin to follow a genealogy of righteousness. Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch. Enoch, after he became father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Although Enoch lived a total of 365 years, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. I want to close with Enoch. I want to close with something good. Enoch. We just talked about the line of Seth. Jabel, Jubal, Tubal-Cain, and Lamech. Ugh. The line of Seth. We just talked to them. Enoch walked with God. Jubal, Jabel, Tubal came. We see the beginning of all that we know of agriculture, industry, and arts. Self-reliance on things that make you who you are. You identify through that. Enoch would not be identified by what he does. He's identified in the God he serves. Enoch walked with God. You see the difference? Two lines. You've got to see this or we miss this. This is huge. Enoch walked with God. Not of self-reliance. He put his trust in God, his word, his promises. We see this quoted of him in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. In 1 John 1, 5, 6 and 7. We see this over and over in the New Testament quoted. Enoch makes every effort to live before God in holiness. He embraces God's ways as his only ways. And he stood firm against his generation of ungodliness. We see that in Jude 14 and 15. He stood firm against ungodliness. He walked with God. Secondly, Enoch was a preacher of righteousness who denounced sin and the unrighteous lifestyle of his generation. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. And he knew There was judgment coming on all those who lived in an unrepentant life. And he did everything to tell them. Now remember remember the story when Cain sinned? God was right there saying, but we can turn this for good, Cain. Remember that? We can turn this for good, Cain. Beware, sin is crouching. Church, listen. There is no temptation that has seized you, but is common to man. But God has provided a way of escape. Sin is crouching. And when we engage in a little, beware, 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 sin is crouching to take you to the next level. And you can never satisfy evil. Evil is a privation. Good. But God in His mercy is there to say, if you call on me, 
I will rescue you. Wow. And so we have the picture. He's a preacher and he's denouncing sin. He's calling his generation, repent, repent, repent. Enoch, the third thing about Enoch and the last thing. The Bible says Enoch pleased God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 speaks of him pleasing God. His life, his message, his godliness so pleased God that God honored him by taking him away from this earth to be in his presence forever without experiencing physical death. We do not see another person like this until we come to chapter 6, Noah, verse 9. And then the words in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and here it is, he walked with God. He walked with God. We come to this place, and in this juncture of our study, what I hope we've been able to, I hope I've been able to take down these two paths and explain it. Of the depth and the depravity of sin. The mercy of God. And to call and to fall upon His mercy. Because sin crouches to take you down its road. You can always return, but the farther you go, the more difficult it is. And as you follow the life of Cain, you don't see a generation coming back. As you follow the life of Seth, there are still preachers of righteousness living in that generation. It's a call to our day, is it not? I think this is a call for us to fast and pray. Oh God, forgive us, Lord. And may we be coming back to you. And it starts with me, not them, me. Where have I taken on self-reliance in my life? Where has agriculture and industry and the arts gained control in me? That my life is defined by them and not by what Enoch had described and he walked with God. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.